if you have a Bible with you, turn to um, Psalm 24. Um, and uh, you don't need to have heard the, the sort of first rev- uh, message of this series to, to track with this one. Uh, if you want to have a, go back and have a listen, you're very welcome to do so if, if you missed it. Um, but I want to preach about um, revival and holiness. And what I really want to sort of talk about um, are the big themes. I'm going to do a, a challenge myself and try and preach a message on the book of Leviticus and the big themes in the book of Leviticus. Um, but I'm going to use a psalm to do so because otherwise we'd just have to read the entire book of Leviticus, which would take a long time and confuse people. Um, so I'm going to read this psalm uh, or a couple of verses from this psalm, uh, chapter 24, that really sum up the big themes of Leviticus, and it's, it's a well-known reference to Leviticus, um, and therefore will help us do so. So it says this, Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4, says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then it says, Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Um, I'm sure many of you have at some point, if you've been walking with God for a while, you grew up in a Christian context, you've probably done the I'm going to read through the Bible cover to cover in a year, New Year's resolution. Yes, yes, nodding heads, I see you. Yeah, so I've done that. And for most of us, you start off in Genesis. Genesis is grand. You recognize the stories. You've got, you know, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, you know, uh, Isaac. Joseph, all the classic stories, no trouble getting through that at all. You get the Exodus, again, similar thing, a lot of recognizable stories. Moses, you've got plagues, you've got the Ten Commandments, those kind of big things. And then you get to Leviticus, and that's where the going gets tough. You normally hit it in about mid-February if you're doing a Bible reading through the year plan, and you just begin to drag, because you go, what on earth? Like, what on earth do I do with this book? This is so detached from my daily life. You know, it's all about uh, offerings and sacrifices. Uh, It's about festivals. It's about purity. It's about washing. It's about mold. It's about, like, all of this random stuff that we just go, well, what, what do I do with that story? Like, do we, you know, do we burn down moldy houses? Do we get the council to do that? Is that what it's for? Do we get Craig next week to stand up in a robe and turban splattered in blood and preach to us? I personally vote yes. I think that would be class, okay? But nonetheless, probably not what it means. But when it comes to this sort of concept of revival, Leviticus is wildly relevant. I want to kind of give us a little bit of a a help in reading Leviticus, but also preach on the context of revival and do two in one shot. Um, So uh, Leviticus is relevant to revival because of this. Leviticus is all about the people of God living in the presence of God. That is what it is about. That is the core of the message of Leviticus. Um, revivals look very different. If we look at church history, we look at scripture. Uh, and by revivals, what I mean is kind of like a, a special outpouring of the presence of God, something that seems sort of often very unique um, and, and uh, you know, powerful uh, and often unusual, at least in our experience. Um, and they often look very different practically. They can be focused on preaching or, or theology or corporate prayer or in an individual church or in a locality. Lots of different ways they can work out. Um, but one of the key things that, that all revivals have in common, and this is from J.I. Packer, this isn't just from me, is that one of the, the marks of revival 
is just a unique sense of the presence of God. Like a unique sense that God is suddenly close. God is suddenly real. God is suddenly manifested, tangible, almost like you can reach out and touch him amongst his people and in the place where he is moving. Many times, I think for us as Christians, um, the reality is that that we can have uh, the presence of God at all times because God lives within us. Uh, And I've heard it described as like radio waves. And if you get your antenna up and you tune in, you can experience the presence of God. And I yes and amen that heartily. Absolutely. But revival seems to go beyond that. Revival seems to go to the point that God is like, it's like heaven pressing into earth. God coming close so that even those who are desperately trying to tune God out still can't avoid meeting him. That's what it seems to be. One one of the great revivals um, and one of the most powerful sort of revival, well, collections of revival stories that we have comes from the Hebridean revival of the sort of late 40s and early 50s. And uh, we have all of these reports over and over again of God showing up amongst people who had no expectation that God was going to show up. Like there's this story of a a dance hall and um, they were probably having some nice Scottish Kaylee. I doubt it was something, you know, dramatically sinful going on. But God just landed in the midst. They were having a, a prayer meeting down the road and in this dance hall up the road, the presence of God just comes And we're told that people fled like they were fleeing the plague and ran outside to do business with God and to come to God and to turn from their sin. Absolutely powerful. Apparently 75% of those who made decisions for Jesus or those who, who were ultimately saved did so before they came to a church meeting because of how tangible the presence of God was in those islands at that time. Duncan Campbell, the sort of key guy in that movement, said this. He said, God seemed to be everywhere. That's what revival is like. To be honest, it's less like a radio wave. It's more like a tidal wave. It will wash away everything. It will take everybody. That is a revival. That is what we are looking for. And to be honest, that is what we need. In our nation right now, in our generation, in our time, what we need more than anything else, right, is not another program, it's not more words, it's not another strategy. Good though those are, awesome, we will have those, we will do those, but ultimately the, the thing, the thing that we need is the presence of God. That is it, that is our hope, that is what can do what we cannot do. The presence of God can do in an instant what it would take us a thousand lifetimes to achieve. We can maybe change a mind. God can change a heart. He can transform people overnight. We need it. And to be honest, more than we need, it's great that there's lots of people here today, but more than we need more people in the church is we need more presence in the church. We need God to show up and the people will come. The presence of God is the hope of the church. It is what we need. Jesus told the the disciples not to go into all the world, but to wait and then go into all of the world, to wait for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they needed. And so here's the question. How do we have more of God's presence? How do we have more? I believe we experience God's presence here today. I believe we experience him regularly. But how do we have more? We should, we should be hungry for more. We should be longing for more. How do we have more? Well, Leviticus talks about that. Because Leviticus comes right after Exodus. And at the very end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built. And God fills it with his presence. And then he gives them this book of Leviticus. 
And Leviticus is about how the people of God steward and honor and love and build their lives around the presence of God. He talks, it talks about that. And it's summed up beautifully in this psalm. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's a clear tabernacle Exodus reference right there. How do we go up to the temple mount? How do we stand in that holy place where his presence is clearly revealed? Clean hands and a pure heart. That's how we do it. Again, going back to the Hebridean revival, this verse was really the catalyst. This concept, you could say, even more than just the verse, was a catalyst for that revival. Um, it, it, uh, it all began with a couple of old ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith, 82 and 84 years old, who were concerned about the church, physically frail, one of them was blind, concerned about the, the lack of young people in the church and the fact that things felt like they were dying somewhat. And so they committed to pray every Tuesday from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m., which, which is a serious prayer commitment. And after some months of prayer, they had a vision. And the vision was of the church packed with young people and the presence of God moving. And so they went and they shared it with the elders, uh, which was absolutely the right thing to do. And they share it with the elders and the elders say, well, look, we, we've tried like lots of programs and missions. We've tried all of this stuff. It hasn't worked. And Peggy goes, have you tried God? which is absolutely savage. And by the way, we old ladies, you're permitted to be absolutely savage for Jesus. Okay, it's awesome. I love that. So the elders get convicted and they say, right, we're going to pray twice a week from 10 p.m. until the wee hours of the morning. And they set about praying for weeks and weeks and weeks. Nothing happens. Nothing, not a thing. And then one night they're praying and a young man who's with them stands up and reads this verse. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And before he gets any further, the presence of God lands on him, knocks him out. It begins to move all around this prayer meeting. They're all you know, encountering God, repenting, turning to God, crying out in prayer. Just a, a profound move of God in this room. And they go on until about 3 a.m. in the morning and they walk out into the village um, because they were in that village at that time. So they're walking out back to their homes and either side of the road, they find men and women on their knees at 3 a.m. repenting, turning to God, crying out to God for mercy. They see that every light in the village is on because people have been woken up by the presence of God and are turning to him in their homes. It's a profound move of God. It's a profound presence of God. And it comes back to this and this verse and this concept. See, often we get very concerned in church about the sins out there. And and we are right to preach into those areas. We have to talk about them. I spoke about that in, in the first part of this message. It's not, we can't just sort of shut ourselves off from that. But often I find this, and you find it in the Bible, that before God deals with the sins of the lost, he deals with the sins of the found. Jesus has said that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Like that is, our, that is not merely our duty, it is what we are. We're the only place that that comes from. And so if the world doesn't feel very salty, it's not so much that it doesn't have salt in it, it's that the salt lacks flavor. That's the problem. If, if, if the room is dark, it's because the light is not turned up. And so God, before he deals with the world, before he deals with the sins out there, he deals with the sins in here. 
that's where he begins his work. And so I want to, I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about clean hands and a pure heart. I don't want to try and imitate the Hebridean revival this morning. I don't think God will ever do the exact same thing twice in the exact same way. But there's a principle there. There's a truth there that we need to grasp and we should look at. And I, and I want to, I'll give you a sort of slight disclaimer, which is that, that there's weight in this message. There is weight, and I want us to feel it. I don't want to sort of take it off too quickly and let it be too light. I don't want it to crush us either, but, but I do want us to go, okay, let's take this seriously. We don't often talk about this, and we don't want that to necessarily be our tone constantly, but let's, let's look at this and see if God has something to say to us through this today. So the first thing, both in this psalm and then in Leviticus, is clean hands. The book of Leviticus and this psalm, uh, as, a, as an example of it, talk about specific sinful actions that we need to deal with as the church. Um, when, when it comes to hands, hands were this sort of key tool of worship in Leviticus. So they were used for raising up offerings, used for raising up hands in prayer, used for, for laying hands on sacrifices, all, all of these various uses for hands. And the hands of the priests were important to what was going on. And so the priests, before they would go into the tabernacle, on their way in, they would have to cleanse their hands. There was a bronze basin outside full of water, and they'd have to cleanse their hands in that before they could go in and minister to God and minister to people. Now, interestingly, this idea of washing, this was never a sacrifice for sin. It was never about atoning for sin. It never made up for sin. The sacrifices were a separate thing. They were done after or before. They were not done. Uh, this wasn't some replacement for sacrifice. And likewise, when it comes to dealing with our sin, we, we come from that place of going, there is a sacrifice that has been made. And we will never be able to replicate that. Whatever we do, our, our righteousness, our, 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 our sanctification, our holiness, that will, that will never compare and never be able to do what Jesus has done for us. But at the same time, just like that priesthood who needed the sacrifice, and just like us who have that sacrifice, we need to come with that idea of sensitivity into the presence of God. Recognizing that God is a holy God. That God does not love sin. That God actually, as it says, hates sin. Over and over again in the Bible, it's very clear he died to deal with our sin. And sin is a serious thing. So we have to come with that sensitivity, that seriousness into the presence of God. Every single one of us, we all have a lifelong battle with sin that we will never be done with until the day we go to be with Jesus. Okay, so, so there's no perfect person other than Jesus. There's no perfect person who's been used by God in a revival. Um, but I think there are a couple of ditches we can get into whenever it comes to dealing with sin. Uh, the first one is this. It's, it's an old teaching. We probably don't have a lot of people that hold to it anymore, but it's what's termed as Christian perfectionism. Uh, Christian perfectionism was this idea that if you got a second blessing, or what we might term a baptism in the Holy Spirit, um, you would never sin again. And there were people who claimed that they had had that second blessing and didn't sin anymore. Now, how many of us, you believe you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you know that's not true, right? Yes? Okay, how many of you are married to someone who's baptized in the Holy Spirit? And you know that's not true, right? Craig, you need to put your hand on your... Becky's sin may manifest shortly, okay? Well, that's the reality is, is, is uh, 
that that is one ditch that we can get into. I don't think it's a common ditch these days. What I think is a common ditch is the other side of that, which is more of an attitude than a teaching. But it's an attitude of like, that'll do. Like, like, I don't need to worry too much about my sin. The standard, yeah, it might be high, but I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to think about it. I, I'm kind of good. I'm going to take a spiritual nap. Jesus has dealt with my sin, and I'm just going to coast on into glory. And the reality is that, that these are sort of flip sides of the same coin that say the same thing, which is you don't need to deal with your sin. And the Bible would say, no, 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 you absolutely need to deal with your sin. If you want to come into the presence of God, we want to experience the presence of God in the church. Sin is going to be a barrier to that. It's going to block it. It's going to stop us from having all that God or from receiving all that God has for us. And so cleansing our hands, where where the passage urges us to do this, it's about not being casual, not being flippant. We've all uh, recognized how important washing our hands is uh, over this COVID time, haven't we, right? We were all told at the start, you've got to wash your hands for 30 seconds, right? And if you, if you didn't, wanted to do that properly, you sang happy birthday. Now, we started to do that until our three-year-old started demanding cake every time we went to the loo. Okay, so we put a stop to that. But nonetheless, washing hands has become something that we're not casual about. And the reality is, COVID is a, a much higher rate of survival than sin. You know, like sin is much, much, much more serious. And cleanliness before God is much, much, much more serious. A, a, a meeting with God in Scripture was never a casual thing. It was never an everyday event that you just sort of went into willy-nilly, just nice and casually, hey, I'm going to encounter God. It was more like a near-death experience. For everyone that met him, it was like flat on their face, crying out, you know, worshipping, slightly terrified, slightly exhilarating, just somewhere in the midst of this very, very, very non-casual place. There was this encounter with God that people would just be blown away by. There was no sense of sort of, hey, I'm just going to come in and by the way, God, I'm just going to quickly check Instagram here, you know, whilst the seraphim are shouting, holy, holy. You know, it was, it was serious. It was a serious thing. And, and I think in our day where we see God moving powerfully, we, ha- we see people taking it seriously. So I, I have a friend who um, is a, a worship leader, talented all-round musician. He's one of those guys that would get pulled in as a ringer to, to play in various contexts because um, he, he could do sort of a bunch of instruments. And uh, he, he was invited up uh, on a number of occasions to be part of the band at, at Causeway Coast Vineyard with, with Alan Scott whenever he was there. Um, and uh, oftentimes, say not often, but he told me on a few occasions that if, if the presence of God didn't seem to be as, as tangible as, as Alan felt it should be, um, he, he would come up and he wouldn't come in accusingly or, or angrily or anything like that, but he would just go and probe what the band were up to, how they were living. He, he would say, look, anyone done anything this week, uh, said anything this week, watched anything this week? He would challenge them on it. And there was powerful times of worship, powerful. And because it was still a great church, you know. Um, But there was a sense of of taking that encounter with God and the things that would stop that encounter seriously. And if we want to be in the presence of God, we have to do war with sin. We have to go to war with it. Sin, Sin is still deadly. Sin is poison. 
It is cancer. It is the nails through the hands of Jesus. That's what it is. And we love Jesus. We do not want to crucify again the Lord of glory. We do not want to, to, to be people who just uh, you know, do things that offend God because, well, that was, that was done. We don't need to worry about that anymore. No, no, no. It's still serious. It can still stop you from living in the presence of God. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We must do war with sin. And you know what? You might never fully win, but you can have a ton of victory. And God blesses the warfare. God blesses it and he blesses it with his presence. If we, do, if we want to know why maybe we don't have more of the presence of God. I don't want to say it's definitely this. By no means I don't want to heap up condemnation. I don't want to speak out of my place. But we should at the very least consider, is sin a factor? Is it if you want more of the presence of God in your life, if we want more of the presence of God in this church, if we want more of the presence of God in this nation, maybe, maybe it is sin. That's not a radical thought if you read the Bible. That's quite possibly the case. Might not be, but there's a reasonable chance it is. And if it is, let's cleanse our hands and ascend the hill of the Lord. The second part of this passage then is about a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Um, we often, when we think of that, I think our natural sort of default uh, interpretation of it would be, that's going to be about motivations, about having pure motives, right? And I think there's probably a sense maybe of that in there. But actually, when, when you read the original language uh, and also you, do look, you look further around it in, in Scripture, that idea of a pure heart is more about having like a single heart, or what you could say is a, a focused heart, a heart that is focused on God. Now, I know whenever someone stands up and says something that seems to take away from the obvious meaning, uh, some people can be a little bit skeptical. So I'll give you a verse that kind of really nails that down. I can't give all of the reasons why that's the case, but I'll give you this, which is in James 4, 8, that again, speaks, uh, really echoes this, this verse in the Psalms very clearly. James 4, 8 says this, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, going into the presence of God. And it says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So cleansing and sin. And then and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the opposite of a pure heart is a double mind. And therefore, a pure heart is a single mind. It is a mind focused on God. It is a mind that is after one thing. It is a mind that pursues God with everything. It is a heart that goes after him with all that it has. And Leviticus, again, it speaks to this issue. Um, Leviticus is not just a book that outlines a bunch of sins. It definitely outlines a bunch of sins, but it's not all it does. What it also does is it, it, it speaks of a life that is centered around and focused on the presence of God. The, the tabernacle was a, a relatively large building, but in, in some sense it seemed to almost fill the entire nation. Because everything the people did was drawn back to that place. It was all tied in, all roads led to the tabernacle. So if you had a kid, you went and you sacrificed. At various times of the year, you would go up to the tabernacle to come into the presence of God. Your, your daily work would be brought as a first fruit on an annual basis to the tabernacle. Your, your weekly rhythms would have a rhythm of Sabbath, of, of Sabbath, which again would draw back to the tabernacle, back to the presence of God. 
And this isn't just an Old Testament idea that everything should be focused around that. Very much in the New Testament too. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, set your mind on things above. Um, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are urged over and over again in Scripture to make our entire life about the things of God, to pull it all back to him, to center it all on him. And contrast that then with the generation, the time that we live in, which is arguably the least focused and most distracted generation in history. We have a real challenge on that front. We have all of these things constantly vying for, fighting for our attention. There's one sort of YouTube celebrity guy, and he put it in these terms. He's a marketing guy, and he said, attention is the new currency. It's very, very true. Like you take your your apps or whatever. They're all about trying to get you back to them and get your attention and draw your focus back to those things. It It can be hard for us to do so, but we are called to make this Um, space for and focus on God. I I think if we went round the room, if we spoke to, uh, if you're here and you're you're a Christian today, we asked you, do you want more of the presence of God? I I would hope that all of us would go, yeah, of course I do. Like, I I think we would. I I don't think there's many here who wouldn't say that. Um, You know, we, we do want more of the presence of God. The question is, how much do we want the presence of God? And how much do we want it compared to the other things that would try and draw our attention, that would try and draw our affection, that would pull us away from his presence? Smartphones are a great example. I am not sitting here sort of railing on smartphones by any means, but they're a good example of that kind of drawn attention and that, um, that lack of focus. Apparently we check them every 12 minutes on average when we're awake. Um, and the average American adult, Americans are dodgy though, but nonetheless, uh, three hours and 43 minutes a day is how much they use their smartphones, right? Now, I, I am not anti-smartphone. I have a smartphone. It's on right now, keeping my time for me, right? I love smartphones, so long as it's not an Android. If you're an Android person, you're unusual. It's been, I've had, a, I've had a, an iPhone for seven years, right? Seven years since I invited Steve Jobs into my heart. It's been a wonderful relationship. Um, but uh, but I, so I'm not opposed to them. But like every 12 minutes, we check in with our smartphone. Do we do we check in with God every 12 minutes? Do we go, hey, am I in the presence of God? Smith Wigglesworth, a great evangelist in the early part of the uh, 20th century, said, I, I never pray more than five minutes, but I never go more than five minutes without praying. That's a life lived in the presence of God. Um, we, we do that all the time. We allow our focus to be distracted. You know, we, we'll, we'll go in and we'll read a Bible and we'll, we'll look up a verse on the Bible app. And within five minutes, we're finding out what Adele eats for breakfast. You know, uh, she skips breakfast, by the way, just so you know. She, no, I have no idea. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, is, that is what we do often. And we do, we'll do it with anything. It's not, not just tech. I mean, tech's part of that. But anything that we can push to an excess that can fill our lives, it can be a great thing. It can be a marvelous thing. It can be a gift from God. I, I, I love sport. It's great to go and watch good movies. All of those things, they are wonderful. You can do them to the glory of God. But if it's constant and if it's filling everything, if it's dividing your heart, it will pull you out of the presence of God. It absolutely will. We will not live in the presence of God until we go. That is our primary focus and purpose. You know, we we, we say, um, 
as, as evangelicals that, that scripture is our ultimate authority, that this book, we believe it to be breathed out by God. We believe it to direct us. It is uh, true for, uh, and, and has everything we need for faith and practice. That's what we believe, right? Now, this book, if you read it, and most of you I'm sure do, you will find that it is all about God. Every, every bit of it, it all ties back to God. It is all about him. It is all centered on the great story, not of you and your life, but of God and his work. That is what scripture is ultimately about. And it has a lot to say to us as a result, right? But it is all about God. Now, if we say that this is what we believe to, and this is directing us, then the same thing that, is, that we could say about scripture should be able to be said about our lives, that they are all about God, that they are all lived for God, that every bit of it seems to come back to the presence of God, that this is a life, when we look at your life, it should be all lived unto God and for God and through God and in God and done in the name of God, done in the name of Jesus. That should be our life. And that focus on God is what will pull us into his presence and a lack of it is what will pull us out. Many of us, you know, when, when you are early in your walk with God, if you've been walking with God for some time, you'll know that those early days you seem to feel the presence of God almost everywhere. And, and you, it was just that wonderful time of, of sensing his presence and you'd come into church and you'd be right there and you'd go out and you'd read your Bible and be right there and you would go into work and you'd sense the presence of God. Marvelous. And for many of us, and I speak to myself here, do you know what? We, we, there are times when that goes away and there's times, especially after that early phase where that seems to drop. And I don't think it's necessarily that God's removing his presence from us. I think sometimes we've just lost the focus. We've just said, ah, do you know what? I'm not going to give as much of my life and my thought life and my heart to the person of God. The Bible has a great term for this. Uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's interesting, it says the weight and sin, not the weight of sin. Do you know, there, there are things that can stop you from, what, is it, what does it say here, looking to Jesus, that are not necessarily sin. It can just be weight. It can just be a life that is too heavy that is too full, where you're carrying too much, where you're doing too much, where you're not carving out that space, that time to be in his presence, to seek him, whatever that looks like for you. I know in my own life, there was a period in my uh, early 20s where I just got like way too into the gym. Now, I'm obviously an elite athlete, okay, so this was a real temptation for me. Now, I was always blessed with really average genetics and, uh, and not very gifted, but there was a time where I just got like way into the gym. Um, more, more than I should have been. And I got convicted of it. And it's not that gymming is sinful. Like, gymming is good, and I can still do it. But, like, I was sort of, I would refuse. We would have done sort of church um, fasts a, a few times a year, and I would always skip them because it would, like, impede my very mediocre performance. You know, that was kind of the attitude. It was, like, it was just weight. It wasn't sin. It was weight. Literal weight, actually, as it turned out in that instance. It was, it was something that was pulling me away from the presence of God. And what does that mean for you? I, I don't know. I, I, I can't give you the line for your own life as to what that looks like. That'll be different depending on your circumstance, your routines. Um, you know, there's no sort of, you can watch 
90 minutes of football twice a week, but if it goes to extra time, you're sinning. You know, it's not, it's not that, right? But you know yourself if you're sensitive to it and you're going, am I in the presence of God? Or when you come to God, and do you, do you have that sense of, actually, I've, I've had way too much distraction, then maybe, maybe that is the time to cut some of these things out. We need to live a life that is, has clean hands and a pure heart. We need to live a life that is dealing with sin and is making space for God. That is saying, I'm going to focus on God and, in his, and on his presence. And close with one final thought, and I'll get the band back up here. Um, you know, the, the fruit of revival, the, out, the outworking of revival, um, whenever we see it in different places, it's very much that we see this kind of sensitivity to sin, this focus on God happening at scale. It seems to happen in whether it's a whole church or a city or a nation or whatever it might be. There's that sense of this, this cleanliness of hands, this purity of heart is, is a result of revival in many ways. But, but often when you look at w- w- the cause of revival, what caused it? It's whenever a, a few people, a small group decided, we're going to ascend the hill of the Lord before revival comes. We're going to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts so that we can live in the presence of God. And from there it spills out to wherever God directs it to go. We, we need a revival. It's not just that this nation needs a revival. We need one. You need one. I need one. Like We need to have a revival. And how do we do it? We must ascend the hill of the Lord. We've got to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. A.W. Tozer has a great quote. that I, I, In my first message on this subject a month ago, I talked about sort of prayer and preaching being essential elements of a revival. Tozer says this, which I think is a great balance to that and and lines up with what I'm saying today. He said, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe that the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying and it simply will not work. If we as the people of God want the presence of God, it's, 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 it's not complex, but it's not necessarily easy. But it does involve this. We've got, to, we've got to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. We've got to deal with sin. We've got to make space for him in our lives. And the, and the fact is that the presence of God is worth so much more than whatever you have to sacrifice to get it. Like, there's, there's a challenge in dealing with sin. There's a challenge in making space for God. It's not necessarily easy, but the presence of God is marvelous. The presence of God is so good. It's good for you, and it changes your life, and encourages and strengthens you, and it changes the world around you. Like, why would we not? Think about it. God has given us his presence in our midst. In, in, in Leviticus, he had given it to them in the tabernacle. He had given them this gift of his presence. And in our day, he's given us the gift of his presence in his people. And whatever we have to do to get there, it is more than worth the price.